Welcome to Consilience, an African science podcast brought to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. Consilience is a weekly podcast dedicated to promoting reason, skepticism, and a scientific worldview in Africa and beyond. Welcome to Consilience. Today is May 22nd, 2013, and I'm Owen Swart. Joining me today is Chris Sham. Ahoy! And Patrick Till. Good evening, listeners. And introducing our new panelist, uh, Sue Patterson. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, welcome. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Sue? What, what's brought you to uh, to the place in your life where you could be on consilience? You asked me nicely. <laughs> oh, well, well, there you go. That's that's a good enough reason as any. Uh, and before uh, that, what happened? Um, I've been a consilience, consilience listener um, since uh, pretty much the beginning of the podcast. I'm pleased to have a chance to, to participate. Thank God for that. <laughs> All right, well, shall we move on to our first segment this week? And as always, it is Teaching Angela to Appreciate History, in which we try to, to share our love of days gone by with our, our absent uh, co-podcaster, Angela Meaden. And um, this week's article is about uh, what happened on this day in 1945, and that was when Operation Paperclip stepped into high gear. Paperclip? Yes, Operation Paperclip. It was that the, like uh, weapons to what? Cut people with paper and pour lemon juice or something into it? Or wow, where did that come from? I, <laughs> I don't even. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's close, but no. So so Operation Paperclip. All right. So well, okay, let me set the. Uh, the groundwork for this. So after World War II, the United States government decided that they needed to ensure that, that German Nazi scientists and engineers didn't fall into the hands of the Soviets or of divided Germany or, or even of the United Kingdom, despite the fact that the, the UK were their allies at the time. So a list of all the potential candidates of, uh, of, of uh, former Nazi scientists or at least German scientists was made and was called the Ossenberg List. Unfortunately, uh, then-President Harry Truman decreed that no former Nazi should be included on the list because it would just look bad politically to have Nazis serving the U.S. government. So uh, an agency called the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, JIOA, they knew that this restriction would automatically exclude some of Germany's most important and strategically valuable scientists, including Werner von Braun and Herbertus Hubertus Hubertus Strughold. Um, and just about everybody else on the list. So so they created all new biographies and resumes for the scientists, completely erasing any mentions of past affiliations with the Nazi party. Are you telling me that some political people actually lied? Um, yeah, fancy that. So are we offended that they got away with war crimes? Is that it's, a it's definitely a real uh, concern. Yeah, maybe not war crimes themselves, but at least they were implicated, they were involved, at least tangentially. I'm also not all that upset about it, but uh, there are people who are, are uh, furious that uh, Nazi scientists were, were brought into the employ of the U.S. government. I have a question. Hmm. Who was uh, Hubertus still called? He was a famous physician who did terrible things Medical during better. the war. Yes, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. And then wonderful things later. Um, Rocket scientist. No, no, that was very Rocket scientist doctor. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was brain surgeon. <laughs> but wouldn't you agree that war in general causes a lot of advances in science and technology? And a lot of scientists, perhaps if that might not even be their philosophy, but they would certainly get lured into the war effort of whatever com- uh, country they happen to be living in at the time. And whether or not that can be personally attributed to them, or whether or not you just happened to be in Germany at the time, and then you 
have to build chemical weapons or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly the case. If if you were a scientist working in rocket engineering in, uh, in living in Germany in the 1930s, you would have been drafted for the war effort. Sure. Mm. I, I can't think of an example off the top of my head. I know there were some who escaped, fled, intentionally didn't want to do that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, that, is, that is another option. Einstein mm. a little more complicated because yeah. he was Jewish. Right, right. He, but he he left some time before because he knew that bad things were happening. Mm. Uh, if he'd been in Germany, he might well have been drafted. That, that's an interesting question, actually. And of course, mm. the Allied forces never built any terrible weapons at all. No, none whatsoever. They only <laughs> built uh, bombs full of flowers and perfume. Yes, yes, yeah. 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 yeah so mo- morally complicated, certainly. But no, uh, indeed, indeed. the the only really positive effect from the. Uh, this Operation Paperclip that I know of is is the the Moon Program, um, mm-hmm. um, NASA, yeah. um, and of course the the Soviets had their own equivalent of this. Their um, top top uh, uh, rocket designers also picked up a whole lot of um, mm. German stuff. Yeah, yeah. I can't really think of any great examples outside of rocketry. I think that's the best example. If, if I'm not mistaken, the the first was it the Mercury or the Gemini? Mercury was the Mercury first one. Came first, yeah. the, their rockets were almost exactly VTUs. I mean, they were they were certainly based on yeah. them very closely. The, the, the Saturn V, which came along later, was almost completely redesigned. But the, the, the yeah, initial, and, and, the first and series. same with the the um, uh, Sputnik. Whatever yes. whatever rocket was that launched Sputnik was also very very closely related to yes. the V2. Yeah, yeah, I imagine so. I suppose it also comes around to asking the question, what did they actually do? I mean, maybe if you're a rocket scientist during the war, you have to do what you do. Does that uh, excuse it? What happens if the guy was one of these uh, medical doctors that did experiments on these uh, people, these prisoners of war? Um, how far are we willing to go to allow them to say, well, okay, mm-hmm. that's sort of allowed, that maybe killed people, but wasn't directly your hand, it was just one of your experiences, okay, you killed somebody directly yeah. for your experiment. Yeah. And then you have the whole ethical thing of, of what they call the, the fruit of the poison tree. If if that medical knowledge was acquired through ethically dubious means, is it still okay to use it? Uh, Even if it's going to save other people's lives in that Because we do use that stuff. We continue to use True. it. We know that sure. animals sure. have been tortured and um, terrible things have happened along the way, and we do use that technology. Mm. We use it all the time. Mm. I mean, we mentioned an example last week of, of um, what's his name, who invented the the, the, the smallpox vaccine yes, yes. And, and tested um, it on a small Jenna, boy. Jenna, yes. yes, yes, Edward Jenner tested it on a small boy who was the the son of, of his gardener. I remember his name was Phipps. Phipps. That's correct. Yeah, that was very ethically ethically dubious. I mean, the boy turned out to be okay, but he may just as easily not have been. Mm. Well, there have been a lot of those type of experiences, certainly in the past, even in the psychological fields. There have been some very dubious uh, experiments in psychological fields, even up to modern-day times. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not in the last decade, but certainly, what, 20, 30 years in the 70s, they oh, had yes. those, uh, what they call those prison of uh, war experiments and all the, that. The Milgram, Milgram experiments, is that the ones? Oh, Milgram rings bells, but I can't, I can't, I can't remember, remember the name. But basically, I know which ones you mean. Yeah. To explain to you listeners, what they did was they had these students from a university, and they split them down the middle, this lot are going to be uh, prisoners, and that lot are going to be prison guards. The Stanford Prince. The Stanford. Stanford. There that's the one. That's the one. Mm. I knew we brought you along for something. Uh, there you go. Made my <laughs> contribution. <laughs> and we learned a lot from that. I mean, it certainly was unethical if you look at it now, and especially what the people did thereafter and the uh, study, the, 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 the doctors, the, the psychologists the long, the didn't step in. And, yeah. The long term effects have definitely um, helped the uh, Americans to be able to. Uh, in, interrogate the prisoners much better so there mm. are some benefits there yeah indeed i think i think if there's one thing that's very different with operation paperclip was the intentional covering up of yes past yeah, histories definitely um, yeah. stanford everybody was 
completely above board and, and didn't mm. try to hide what they were doing. So you could criticize them afterwards, but at least you're able to. Yeah, exactly. Hippoglyph, it's hard to say what we've lost. And yeah, the other key point here is that they, it's mentioned that uh, one of the concerns was that those scientists and engineers fall into the hands of the Soviets. So if perhaps we, are, we look at it from that perspective, that terrible fear that the Soviets were going to um, yeah. become the, the next Germans. Yeah. Um, and then to say, well, you know, rather we have them, yeah. we use that technology for good, yeah, indeed. air quotes, um, yeah. rather than we go to the Soviets. Interesting you mentioned the, the idea that uh, of accountability. Of course, the, the records of the, of the JIOA, uh, after it was dissolved, were handed over to various other agencies and, and decades later were declassified, all except for the file of Werner von Braun, mm, which yes. was never handed over, which is an interesting thing. So uh, his original dossier seems to have been lost to history. Lost, hidden, kept locked up with the fake moon landing tapes. Something like that. Eaten by a dog. Yes, yeah. Ah. Interesting, interesting. Mm. All right, well, shall we move on to our special segments of the week? Um, Patrick, let's have yours first. What have you got for us? Okay, as always, I've got a whole bunch of news headlines. I read out the news headlines. I mention a couple of comments that uh, caught my eye. And I usually mess up the whole thing. Probably get the guy's nationality wrong, the the, uh, base of employment and so forth. But the first headline caught my eyes, rather pleased with it. Um, climate change caused early humans to flourish. How early? Hmm. Like quite last, early. Last um, week? Oh, um, no, no, no. This is going back quite a bit. This is going back um, 100 to 400,000 years ago. Oh, very early humans. Okay, oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, actually, I'm looking at this. I'm seeing there's a whole range of different eras. You know, 30,000 years ago, 280,000 years ago. Another article says something along the lines of 71. A thousand years ago, this is quite a range. Right, so, so sometime yeah. in the past. Yeah, because that, that time period t- spans several ice ages at least. And Probably what they're saying here is every time you see yeah. a big climate change, you can see changes in society and culture and technology. I would guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's certainly the, 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 the basis of the article. Well, the start of the article, they're talking about um, how uh, the, the, as the European and northern hemispheres uh, bent, began to freeze over the summer, summer, southern hemisphere began to sort of melt a little bit and ease up. Uh, they said, therefore, there's more uh, food and water. We've got a lovely quote here saying that apparently humans need water to live. Well, what? Nonsense. And apparently so do animals that humans hunt also need water to live. So is this the hard times premise that suffering makes us clever and invent things? Or this is this suddenly there's loads of fruit trees and streams I, and we I, I get think, fat I think and it's a reciprocal happy. relationship between the two. During hard times, you have to develop the, the um, great technology and other tricks, and then you can flourish in the, the intervening periods. Okay, so um, we flourish in the ice ages and in the, the warm not, not Not flourish in the ice ages, but you develop the, the things that will give you an edge when things do improve mm-hmm. over those who had it relatively easy all along. Mm. Um, trying to think of one of the examples I know. I think it was early Homo sapiens moving into Europe to meet the, the Neanderthals for the first time. Right, right. Um, because the Homo sapiens had been up in North Africa, fairly dry areas, they'd had to develop all sorts of um, uh, ways of surviving on limited food. Whereas the Neanderthals, Europe, nice and pretty and, and green, hadn't been struggling as much, and that's one of the possible reasons that the Neanderthals declined and the Homo sapiens thrived, is that they, they had arrived with better technology. And speaking of better technology, this particular um, study was talking about the actual tools and how 
the tools seem to have flourished at that time. And in the investigations, in the studies, they found that a lot of these tools were attached to the, well, the spearheads were attached to the staff, a uh, mm. stick that you stick at the other end, uh, with certain types of epoxies and certain types of glues. Mm. And they're saying that they couldn't seem wow. to have worked out where these have come from. Oh, I know. The Anunnaki's. <laughs> oh, here we go again. Um, anyway, back to real science. They say that they think that because of the climates were improved, there was a lot more movement happening and there's a lot more trading between the different tribes. And that helped the different tribes get the different ingredients that they needed to improve their weaponry. All right. That makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, next article. Okay. Those are good news. Now for some bad news. We often get asked this question, what harm does religion do? And um, in South Africa, we have this... Um, what they call it, uh, circumcision. It's as part of a, a process that the young men in this country go through, uh, becoming from a boy to a man. And uh, just very recently, uh, through this um, initiation camp, 27... Right. That's, that's, that's probably worth explaining. The, the, the circumcision we're talking about here isn't, isn't the, the kind of Western circumcision people might be used to where, where it happens sort of in hospital at birth or, this or is with the moil. No, th this is an adolescence at 13 or 14 years old and it happens uh, at a camp out in the middle of nowhere uh, far from access to medical... It's, it's, it's intentionally a, a challenging environment. Right, exactly. So yeah. it's because you're becoming a man. Quite right. So, sorry, Patrick, carry on. Okay. Um, well, just to quickly give the basics part of here... 27 deaths of young males uh, uh, occurred during this uh, year's uh, circumcision, uh, circumcision rituals. Um, one of the problems is that... Um, the, the areas where they do these circumcisions, it's um, very dirty. Uh, uh, it's rural. It's more than just rural. It's like in caves. You know, they go into these mm. dank ritual caves. There's a lot of... Uh, dampness. There's a lot of bacteria floating around in these caves. The bats live in these caves. There's a lot of um, bacteria coming off the bats' droppings, the birds' droppings, and they live in these caves for what two, three days. They do ritual sacrifices of animals. You got all this death and blood and all this floating around here, and then they start doing this ritual for circumcision. And they use old traditional uh, rusty knives in this uh, well dangerous area, an unhygienic, dangerous area. So it's no surprise people are dying from it. Um, anything going into that area, you'll go die from if you get open cuts and wounds. That's why we have tetanus shots when you get yourself cut in nature. And yet they continue doing this. And it's actually upsetting, well, a lot of important people. For example, President Jacob Zuma is highly upset over this. Um, he's throwing his toys out the cot and demanding uh, further investigations. The police have opened 22 dockets, uh, cases of murder against us to wow. try and find out what's happened. So sure. certainly the um, leaders of our country are against us. And they're trying to sort out what's going on here. So maybe it's going to improve. Yeah, I was, I was pleasantly surprised that he got behind that because mm. he, he normally sides with um, tradition, traditional leaders, Indeed. Uh, as, yeah. as well as uh, religious leaders. And um, it's good to see him leaning in a, a constructive direction, I would say. Yeah, quite right. I mean, the... the uh setting aside momentarily the debate about circumcision itself, about whether or not that's a good, a good idea, if, if you're going to do it, if, if you decided that you're going to do it, there are ways of doing it so that it's not dangerous. It's not that hard to, to ensure um, hygiene and using clean tools and, and things like that. It's not that difficult. Surely the people who, who are in these, uh, these authority 
positions who are performing these rituals, it wouldn't be that hard to educate them on, on how to do this safely. And in fact, you're so right there, Owen. Just last year, uh, Jacob Zuma and the Minister of Health uh, suggested that each uh, initiation school has an official proper doctor on site mm. with clean tools to actually do this job. So yeah. these people are actually now already backing the, 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 the suggestions from the president from last year's attempt at improving. So I think the president's just going to come harder and harder down on these uh, things. Mm. I, I presume one of the objections to that, apart from tradition, is mm. cost. Presumably hiring a, a doctor right. would, would push their prices up, push their bottom line down. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, that's, that's presumably a factor. It's quite possible, but um, I don't know, because like I was saying earlier, they actually have a lot of ritual killings. There's a lot of sheep and lambs that get killed in this situation mm -hmm. as well. So there's money spent already yeah. in this case. That stuff probably costs a fair amount anyway. Sure, right? sure, sure. But you're, you're, you're um, charging, presumably, you, you're the, they're effectively customers, these, these kids and their parents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, they're, they're not doing it for free. And yeah, obviously, you, you're going to have some... Um, completely forgot all my terminology now the cost of operating operating mm. cost no oh, there you go <laughs> <laughs> um, and adding a doctor to that takes away from your your profit right but do you really think that uh, even if a doctor is present do you think that someone's going to uh, snap on a pair of latex gloves and you know whip out uh, alcohol uh, swabs and uh, you uh, know in the way that we would expect because the whole point seems to be that it's a it's a terrifying and traumatic ritual that if you survive, you prove to the community that you're a man. I, I, would, I would hope that the doctor yeah. would do that because otherwise they should be uh, yeah. not disbarred. What's the term? Un Undoctorified. Yeah. But I think yeah. the rejection of it wouldn't be about sure, sure, we're, yeah. we, we're trying to um, – we want circumcisions because we believe that we have a, less, a lesser chance of HIV infection. Right. It's not for those reasons. It's for we want to do something scary to teenage boys mm. so that they can prove their manhood. So if it wasn't scary – so I just wonder about uh, – I've heard this come up before. I've got to be honest. And I think it's, it, there will be a little bit of a noise around it. And I think that it will die down, and I'm not convinced that we'll see any kind of real change. Things go wrong. They've mm -hmm. got somebody who can actually help things. If something's looking infected, they can then, right, say, right. go to the hospital right. and so forth mm -hmm. earlier. I mean, these guys go home uh, all proud. They have all the parties, and three days later, dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, it does happen, and there are some examples. Uh, yeah, there's a story that keeps coming up in, in New York City, of all places. Every now and then I hear it happening again, of, of moils who, who uh, are trans transferring sexually transmitted diseases to infant boys. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it's insane. But uh, generally speaking, I, I think that's probably a, a very small minority of, of the people practicing this. I think most people are doing it safely, and, and truly there's a way of doing that that's still satisfies mm. tradition. The only 100% uh, safe circumcision incision is one that doesn't take place. Quite but right. that's a whole other that's debate. True. Okay, here's a lovely, uh, completely different article. Um, interesting, a thoughtful one here that I liked. Language and, language and the two schools of thought is the heading of this um, article. It's uh, from the IOL, that's Independent Online News, uh, South Africa, one of South Africa's uh, leading web news things. Okay. Basically, the, the, they're talking about how does language improve uh, uh, the growth of the nation. Uh, the more languages speak, the, the, the how should I put it? The studies have shown that having more languages improves the mind and so forth. Right, and right. Uh, this is now discussing the point of we are actually losing the ability of South Africa. Now, what some of you might not know, if you're coming from overseas, if you're listening from overseas, is that in South Africa we have 11 official languages plus a whole bunch more unofficial ones. 
Um, and one of the rules in South Africa is you have the right to be taught in schools in your home language. Right. So in theory, we should have lots of people speaking their home language when they come out of school. And what they're actually seeing is most people are speaking English. Mm. And they've been looking at this saying, why are we now following English and why Afrikaans, the other official language of the country, if you will, Af- official, Af- official Af- language. Afrikaans surely is uh, not nearly as common as it used to be. No. I would, I would imagine it's all leaning towards English. Certainly, yeah. yeah. Well, what they're finding, basically, is that um, the parents themselves, uh, when they enroll their kids into grade one, they get given a little questionnaire, tick the language you want your kid to be taught in, mm. and they're actually ticking English. Yeah. Because well, for the global world. That the internet is written in English. Yes. Well, most of it is, unless, of course, you go to Russia or China. Except the bits you can't read, yeah, which yeah. obviously don't count. No, no, but then you have Google Translate for that, <laughs> and then it's written in English, so that's fine. Yeah. So this is apparently for these scientists is a bit of a worry. They say we're definitely losing. I saw numbers here up to eighty percent of children uh, of the the country's vernacular language is diminishing. Big words there. So, so that's an interesting question. Does it matter when other languages die? I mean, language new new languages are are born and old languages die all the time. Oh yes. So the the real question is, does that benefit outweigh the costs of uh, having to intentionally push kids along in school and, mm-hmm. and um, uh, possibly even affect their marks in other subjects. And, and that's I, I, d- the, I don't know enough. That's certainly one of the questions raised in this. Um, apparently in next year, uh, 2014, the government is actually bringing out a law that children have to be taught in schools in three different languages. Intriguing. And all the schools are fighting back saying, if your average schools are, I don't know, 500 people big, um, you've got to do it through the, all the classes. Mm-hmm. That means all the schools have to now employ an extra two teachers and mm. some of them could they say they just can't afford to employ the extra two teachers to teach the kids this new extra third language that the government wants to bring in in the law. Mm. Mm. So I'm conflicted by this because in the company at which I work um, we have to spend a lot of time, I work with uh, entrepreneurs and uh, business people in a, a business incubator and we have to spend a lot of time training these business owners on appropriate business English because um, English is not their first language necessarily. And although they understand the importance of, of you know, the world speaks English, the business world speaks English, um, it doesn't come easily. And there's also pronunciation problems and communication problems. And in the business space, you do not, you, the truth is you just don't come across as professionally when you have a very strong accent. Or, or a person can't understand you easily over the telephone. And people just assume all sorts of things about your competence, fair or not. So what concerns me is that if we, we get all, I would say, nostalgic about home languages and say, oh, well, you know, th- that stuff is more important, you, you're kind of a, a jack of all trades and a master of none. Sure, maybe you can speak five different languages, but perhaps you might have been better off Mastering too. Maybe I, I can give you a slightly more objective um, uh, criticism of, of um, leaning too heavily on on languages that you aren't going to use, uh, which is that I was uh, used to teach in a school where English for almost all the kids um, wasn't their first home language, and the science, my my subject, um, the exams were all written in English. And a lot of them had comprehension problems with the the English textbooks and the English exams, and 
um, me speaking to them in English. Um, and it's hard to say whether the the textbooks and the exams should be translated or if all the kids should be translated. And I don't think either is an easy option. Because no, no. you, can, you can soften that process while they're at school, but at the end of the day, they're going to have to go to university and they're going to have to go into the working environment. And at some point, being able to not communicate easily in English is going to be a hurdle to your progress. Yeah. Well, fortunately, none of us here on this podcast has any accent for you guys to battle with. Not unless we really concentrate on it. Sniff. <laughs> okay, just to finish off this section so we can move on to some more interesting things, uh, a couple of quick headlines here. The Sutu and South Africa are collaborating to develop a 1.3 billion hydro uh, pipeline, I think. So there's a lot of money going into that product. A hydro pipeline. So it hydro pi pipes the hydro. To the Lesotho Highlands Water Project, right, yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and it says go boost that. Um, awesome. Another nice one there. Uh, they're busy l looking to put in some uh, wind farms in Kukunap in Fredendal, South Africa. Uh, Eskom seems to be very interested in this because mm. it's going to improve 100 megawatts um, boost, mm -hmm. boost oh. to the electricity. That's so nice. that looks that's, quite good there. That's quite a jump. That's not bad. Yeah. And, oh, and Dubai police uh, cracking down on ivory smuggling. It's another nice thing there. So um, yeah, mm, good, good news. Blocking it there. And one article that I'm obviously can't spend too much time on because my five minutes has now become <laughs> like 20, six minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a lovely um, uh, a, a new attack on uh, uh, trying to stop this rhino horn problem? We've been discussing this a few times. A new attack was, were they using knives? No, they're using advertising. Ninjas? Oh, oh yeah, advertising. No, advertising yeah. yeah. The new advertising um, statement is rhino horn is made of the same stuff as human nails. Oh, Still yeah. want some? Nice. Basically, that's the question, and they're putting it out on all the I don't know, mm, advertising I'm, I'm areas. I'm not entirely certain that's going to get the people with the, the magical thinking about it. No. Because you're going to ascribe different imaginary properties to the horn. Yeah, uh, it, it, even if you can accept that it's physically the same thing. Yeah, mm. it, it might be. It might be better to supplement the market with ground-up fingernails and selling it as ground rhino horn, and they just eventually wean people off rhino horn and say, <laughs> "Oh, by the way, you've been using ground fingernails for the last twenty years." But bong, you know. That's an... Well, it was suggested last year. We read that article last year about sending the nail clippings to the Chinese embassy. Yes, yeah. I think yeah. it's now just dipping that idea up another level. Yeah, yeah that's a good idea. Okay, that's pretty much everything I had here. Awesome. Well, thank you, Patrick. And and Sue's got a a new uh, segment for us, and uh, it's uh, well, I'll let Sue explain it. But it's called "I Learned on the Internet." Okay, so by way of explanation, uh, the internet teaches me things. As the saying goes, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I'm willing and ready to learn from the internet, the liberal university of the masses. Through the democratic system, which dictates that if enough people post it or read it, it must surely be important and true. Obviously. After I have, I have learned, absorbed, and presented back my new skill set, my fellow podcasters can give their thoughts on whether what I've added to my mental toolbox is either dangerous or benign. Dangerous? Oh, we haven't started yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you get to whole, choose. I think this whole line of reasoning is dangerous. Okay, and of course, this was in, incredibly scientific, and I realized how important this is. So I thought, what is the best way for me to find out what the internet want, wants to teach me? And I thought that Google is the lucky eight-ball tool which I shall use to navigate my journey of discovery. 
Good idea. Yeah. Google will tell me what I need to learn this week because Google knows best. <laughs> it's true. This Google week, is God. Google is God. That's true. That is true. So this week I asked Google, and I have a very specific way of doing this, which which I'll explain, is that I typed in how to grow, and then I let the auto-predict tell me what the internet wanted me to, to learn. Mm. And so I started off I started off with how to grow, and I got how to grow weed, mm. how to grow hair faster, mm. how to grow a beard. Oh, well, that's easy. I think we've got that done. How to grow taller. And as much fun as it would be to discuss all of them, the internet feels most strongly about teaching me to grow weed. Well, there you go. So that's the important lesson that I'm going to learn today. So quickly, my findings. Um, when I uh, followed the internet's lead, I was immediately directed to the website where I can download the Stealth Growers Cheat Sheet or just join the newsletter. <laughs> the newsletter. This is probably a good point to uh, uh, mention that I share this podcast with the kids I tutor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it, it gets better. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> but we mentioned how good weed was last week. <laughs> well, I'm not sure how stealthy I'm being by announcing this project in the podcast, <laughs> but a cheat sheet sounded appealing as I, do, I did need to absorb uh, the information in just a couple of hours. I did do that this morning. I'm told that I can grow weed privately at home for about $300 a month. I don't know how much that is in rands. Maybe someone can quickly... No, uh, it's three, about 3000 Yeah, uh, 3000 Okay, so that's, uh, you know. Including so can I, can I just not do it and say that I did, you know, at this point for, for 3000 rand? Yeah. Because I don't smoke cigarettes and I don't use mind-altering alter substances of any kind. So it doesn't seem sensible to force a weed habit on myself <laughs> just to use my new skill, which the internet needed to teach me. Mm. And 3,000 rand seems a lot to spend on something I plan to just toss. So, well, what if you sell it? You might make a profit. Oh, wait. Can't <laughs> do that. And I'm freakishly law-abiding there, Chris. I'm freakishly <laughs> law-abiding, and I don't want to do it, so I won't. Oh, okay. But um, I thought there's no harm in learning how. Yeah. So, I, um, of course, I'm not going to tell you what I learned, but I did. <laughs> I, I, I dutifully learned how to grow weed. And I've also decided that um, this is when it wouldn't matter, is that uh, if we had the zombie apocalypse, um, that's when store-bought pharmaceuticals are no longer freely available <laughs> and there's no longer a, um, a, a force of law to stop me and it all becomes legal, then I think I will use my skills of growing weed and I'll trade it for rats and rainwater. Nice. So um, that's what I'm going to do with that. Patrick looks like he has some thoughts about that. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Dangerous or benign? Well, I suppose that um, this particular thing is not as bad as what some people learn on the internet. <laughs> uh, what's it? How to be a terrorist? What's that one? There's a lovely, uh, famous website, How to Be an Anarchist. So oh, the anarchist cookbook. Yeah. You know, if you can get the two together, the anarchists <laughs> and the weed grows together, there might be a bit more chilled I'm, out I'm, there. I'm, I'm reasonably sure there is weed growing in the anarchist cookbook. Yeah, I vaguely remember seeing it in there. I mean, hearing that it was in there. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm personally a little disappointed you didn't learn how to grow a beard. That would be much, much more exciting to me. Um, I don't know. The, the weed growing, I'm not going to say it's benign or, uh, what's my other option? Dangerous. Dangerous. Mm. Um, it probably isn't a good idea for you to do, but, but you can still learn useful things about growing plants in general and, and it can have other useful Wash names. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, hemp. Yeah. You, you can make shirts out of it and you can make <laughs> cars out of it. And yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lean heavily one direction or another on dangerous or benign. It's, no. it's a skill. 
mm. what what you do with it is uh, yeah. up to you. And you own are prepared to take a stand on this? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna tend slightly towards dangerous. I, I'm not gonna come down too hard on either side, but from from what I read, it it seems like use of of cannabis tends to have more long-term negative consequences than positive ones. I know that there isn't a lot of good science about this. There are plenty of studies that, that like the one we covered last week, that espouse the wondrous medicinal benefits of, of, uh, of cannabis use. There are also some long-term studies that that's correlated with schizophrenia and various other things. It's, it seems to me that it's unlikely to turn out in the long run once good studies have come through to be good for you. So I'm thinking it's probably not the best thing. So I wonder, I think it comes down to the real question is, is it good or bad to have this information on the internet freely available for young innocent uh, minds like uh, Sue over here to pick <laughs> up and find and read and learn and grow? Well, I, I have I've thought about that. I, I think that absolutely it should be available. I, I don't think that, that that any information should be hidden away, um, except perhaps the designs for the United States' latest fighter jet beyond the F-22. You know, I, I understand that there are... Good reasons for having some secrets, but generally speaking, I think all the information should be available to everybody. I think what's worth noting here is that I think perhaps how we need to view this is, is the skill that I've learned dangerous mm. or benign? Because I certainly don't think the free flow of information is, is ever dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that yeah, absolutely everything is out there and should be out there. And, mm. and if you have... And if you determine enough to learn something, you're going to learn it through which other, whichever means. Mm. So I would never... I certainly would never hold the view that oh okay that's terrible that shouldn't be shouldn't be out there but just it's interesting for me whether um, knowing how to grow weed or uh, knowing how to make yourself taller so for instance <laughs> I'd, I'd learned that wonderful skill um, <laughs> is that a good thing or a bad thing yeah. and I, I think as we follow the segment it, it might get more interesting with some of the, depending on the directions it it would go in terms of I think there are some things that might be dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I'll have to see what Google throws to, at you. Mm. You have to see what Google throws at me. Mm. But if we were talking about how to seduce a child to take it from wow. the comical right. to the serious, mm. um, for example, I would suggest that that's a dangerous thing versus a benign thing. But my view on learning how to grow weed is that I certainly think it is benign. Because if you're going to, if you're going to be a hobbyist about something like this and, and faff around with it, it's, it's tending towards geekery. And and you're making your own little plot of whatever in in in, in your spare room, and that that seems relatively benign, from my point. I of view. suppose the, the the other thing is again we're reading this as is it uh, benign to read about how to grow uh, weed on the internet from South Africa or to read it from America or UK? These are all first world, uh, almost first world countries, but there are some countries in this world that it's legal to smoke and sell weed. There's probably mm. some other countries that don't know it's even legal to grow. So, but then I don't think they'd have the rule six. Consider that helicopters with heat cameras can yeah. fly over you. Uh, I like to imagine rule six applies <laughs> everywhere, right now above us. <laughs> you can't hear it because it's one of those one of those stealth helicopters from Zero Dark Thirty. It doesn't tell you what to do. It, it do about it. It just says. That consider you it. To think about it. Doesn't tell you what to do. Yeah. It says consider. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. That's probably a good thing to consider most of the time. Actually, you never know what what they might be watching with you with their heat cameras. Hmm. So that's that's all from me. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Sue. That was excellent. Sure. Owen, I notice here on our list here, our next uh, section is listener feedback. Do we ever get any listener feedback? Yes. 
Do we? Yes, we do, yes, we do sometimes. Guys, write in. We want to hear some more from you. The listener feedback this week was mostly about how I didn't link the uh, the audio file properly, so it didn't download <laughs> first time around. Wouldn't that be non-listener feedback? <laughs> I suppose it probably would. Reader seeing, feedback. Seeing though. as this is the first time I'm participating, do I still qualify as a listener? <laughs> no, no, you've now graduated. Oh, okay. All, all your past uh, feedback also uh, retroactively no longer counts as listener feedback. That's true, uh, that's true. Yeah, that's all been disqualified. Mm. All right, well, shall we move on to the news? All right, so our first story this week comes from Chris, and it's about rape claims. Yes, turns out false rape claims, as in accusations that people have falsely accused someone of uh, being a rapist, usually aren't true. Um, Wait, what? I've lost track of what, what's <laughs> true and what isn't. Well, let me let me go into the story in detail, and it will all become revealed. Cool, cool. Right. Let's do it. the The UK's Crown Prosecution Service, um, which is connected to their courts and things, um, was interested in when someone is uh, making a rape claim mm. um, formally through their service. Um, is that usually a true claim or a false claim? Right. Because there are a lot of people who are very nervous about being falsely accused, which is not an unreasonable um, thing to be afraid of if it does happen. That could really stuff you up. Um, But they did some science. They they scienced uh, themselves. Excellent. And what they discovered is that hardly any of these um, claims are false. Um, Not even a whole 1%, a fraction of 1%. Uh, The study acknowledges that uh, genuine false accusations against um, um, people who really didn't um, committing your rape can be extremely damaging to them. Um, and of course, we all accept the, the idea that you are innocent until proven guilty. That's clearly a very important default position to take. But what the study also um, found is that the financial and social and emotional um, costs that people experience when they lay such a serious charge are great enough that hardly anyone is willing to, to take them unless they really need to. It's um, uh, generally not worth your while to make a claim like that spitefully and maliciously and falsely. Um, in the few cases where there was a, actually a false accusation, uh, the accuser was either known to have a serious mental disorder, which is going to throw off anything that they say, um, or it was actually a third party who made the accusation and not the alleged victim, uh, which also complicates things. Uh, it's really not the sort of thing that most people are willing to put themselves through voluntarily. Um, uh, there is more complication, though, which is that uh, the study revealed that uh, a lot of the time there was a bit of a difference between the accusation that was made and the kind of abuse that was actually taking place. What, and, uh, what do you mean? Uh, well, for example, uh, I have been raped. Sometimes when they investigate further, you discover, no, this person has been beaten or, or um, the other way around. Wow. Um, so what they got from this is that... Um, the the um, the act of reporting any sort of re- abuse um, is a fairly strong indicator that abuse has taken place, but it's a bit of an imprecise one. You have mm. to dig a little bit to find out the reality of, of what kind of abuse it is. But you can't w- when somebody does report it, it's a fairly good indicator that there really really was something going on. Um, and that has all sorts of interesting and useful implications for how the police and the judicial services and, and the public in general should treat people um, by default um, when they make a, a, an accusation along those lines. Chris, do you know if this research includes uh, child abuse cases? 
yes, in fact, um, in, in both the UK and locally, um, the majority or, or very close to the majority of cases are um, people under the age of 21. Is this, that's always been my sense, is that the lack of trust is often um, teenagers and young children are, are not trusted um, about these things, um, and, and even by their own family members. Mm -hmm. um, Actually, and I wondered whether there was a difference there or, or whether that had, had an I, impact I, on it. I don't recall seeing anything specifically com um, comparing this by age, but you're right, that's, that's definitely a real concern. Um, it did also remind me very quickly that uh, uh, possibly one of the other reasons that, that um, the, the conviction rate is so low is that very often, or most often, I believe, um, the person responsible for the rape or abuse is a close family member or a close friend or something like that, which is obviously also going to complicate things an awful lot. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, it's, it's quite shocking information because mm. it's very different from the way that these cases seem to be handled is that, uh, the, the victims are treated as though they, they are perpetrators in some way. Yeah, and, and, and you know, are you sure? Are you sure? Because you know what this is going to do to mm -hmm. this man's life. Are you sure you want to go ahead with this? Um, are you sure you want to make this case? Yeah, no, and the 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 research is clearly indicating that we 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 should, as a default position, clearly not assume guilt of the person, but certainly assume mm -hmm. that there is something wrong, mm -hmm. and investigate what the problem is, not question whether there is a problem. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a very different position. Yeah, intriguing. I think one of the other things, um, certainly this is a, a, a worrying thing, is I mean, why would a society assume that somebody's going to lie about such a thing? It, it, it's disturbing. But um, the other problem comes in is if we look at the news media in South Africa, is on occasions we have stories of people being accused of various rape and other horrendous, horrible things and only later being proved innocent in a court of law, but their name has been so destroyed through the news media that's not true. Mm. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, there's a story of these uh, five men in, I think it was Cape Town, were accused of raping this uh, two-year-old child, a horrendous concept and idea. Um, and these guys had their faces splashed over every single time. Yeah, that's exactly mm. why there is such a fear of mm. false accusations. Oh, yeah, no, and that's why it was important for them it's, to It's the same as, you know, we it. have this, this terrible fear of, you know, the one innocent man on death row. And just mm. imagine being that one guy. Yeah. Um, you know, we know logically that probably 99.9% .9 of people that are convicted, you know, whether or not you're pro, you know, for or against the death penalty, you can at least rationalize, well, they probably did it. But then there's always that thought of, well, what about the one innocent guy on death row? And then what about the one guy who didn't rape anyone that has, you know, gone through what, what you've described. But then the problem is you can't then, every time a, a young woman comes into a police station, the police officer is primed with that thought and then interrogates them and says, are you sure it didn't happen? Are you sure you didn't say yes? Are you sure that you, you know, um, no, no, I definitely agree with you there, Sue. It's 100%. Mm. That should become our new default action, that believe the uh, victim, uh, investigated with the belief of the victim. Mm. My problem is that it's actually getting to the news media, and the news media are now sure. uh, right. taking enough. it from another yeah. angle. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the media are always another complication mm. to add into anything, yeah, yeah. Um, which I hadn't considered. We should perhaps have some sort mm. of, uh, uh, maybe they could consider a law saying, hide the names, hide the faces, and not mm. allow it. And anyone that does it, they should be fined and held accountable, and perhaps even put in jail, if mm. they're going to expose an in a possible innocent person's face. Mm. 
the newspaper. Yeah, so it's something sort of to off consider. The court case. Now, if a, if a case is subjudicated, then uh, you know, the identity should be uh, preserved. That's I, an I, interesting idea, actually. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. But remember, with the the Zuma shower case, mm-hmm. the Zuma rape case. Yeah. Um, her her identity was protected. His was not. Interesting. And you know that's an that's an interesting point that you've raised. Yeah. Yeah. Intriguing. So, carry on. Mm. All right. And he was inno- proved innocent. That was the conclusion of the court. Yeah, he was found innocent. Yes. Found innocent. <laughs> or not guilty, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. yeah, see what we did there, huh? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to some uh, different terrible news. And uh, this one is about the first case of polio reported in Somalia since 2007. Yay. Yeah. So, for a couple of decades now, the, the World Health Organization have been... Uh, uh, under, undergoing a massive immunization campaign against polio around the world. Their, their intent was to wipe it off the planet, like they did with smallpox. Um, and they've been their, their efforts have been hindered in, in specifically three places: Nigeria, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, where where there've been uh, counter campaigns by uh, by local child haters and crazy people, based generally religious zealots who, who claim that the polio vaccine is some kind of Western plot to control their minds or something. Who knows what crazy people think, but uh, basically that the the, uh, the campaigns have, have failed to reach uh, complete eradication in those areas because of this this, uh, this interruption by the locals, and uh, and now it seems like that influence is spreading, in in Somalia, which is a, a poverty-stricken nation on, on Africa's east coast, uh, they've had patchy immunization since the last recorded case back in two thousand and seven. Um, just because they're, they're just such a poor country, they've been unable to afford a, a, an ongoing comprehensive vaccination campaign and, uh, th- and as a result they've been vulnerable to having the virus reintroduced from Nigeria which although is half a continent away it's uh, it's close enough and now that's happened uh, a two-year-old girl contracted the Nigerian strain of the disease that, that it's been verified through DNA, DNA evidence that it was the Nigerian strain and uh, she's been left paralyzed by the disease this is the, the first mm. case documented in six years the uh, the local authorities of course have been scared into action and they'll be embarking, embarking on a major campaign in, in the uh, Banadir region, which is where the, the little girl was infected. Um, there's something like 350,000 children living in that area, so they'll, they'll all be immunized in the next year or so. But uh, Nigeria's refus- refusal to cooperate with the World Health Organization has affected two other African nations of late, too. In, last year in 2012, Chad and Niger reported cases of children being infected with the disease, also the Nigerian strain. So it's, uh, it's bad news for African kids, and, and not just for African kids. Pakistani children, despite never being completely safe from the disease, that they've, they've never had an un- uninterrupted, uh, they have had an uninterrupted infection uh, record of polio since, since they started keeping records of those things. Uh, and they're, they're now at even ra- greater risk because last year local Taliban leaders put a stop to polio immunizations in the Waziristan region, in sort of a mountainous region in northern, northern Pakistan. Bordering Afghanistan. Um, or nearby Afghanistan. Yes, yeah, anyway. so yeah. somewhere in that in the border region. And that was in response to U.S. drone strikes in the area, effectively using the local children as human shields. Cowardly motherfuckers. Yeah. There, there was also that case, uh, I forget which year, but, but within the last five years, um, where it was revealed that the CIA had been using um, a vaccination campaign as a, as a front for, for spying. And yeah. that completely fucked up everything. That, yeah. that just spoiled yeah. the whole effort. That's incredibly unhelpful. Mm. No, indeed. 
Um, I have some breaking news here. I see at the bottom of this news article, we have an update, 22nd of May 2013. A four-month-old girl in eastern Kenya was paralyzed by wild polio virus. <sighs> so it's now spreading over to Kenya as well. Kenya, of course, is also in, in, uh, in eastern Africa, a little further south, I think closer to Nigeria. No, 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 no it's, it's all east, east coast, same, same yes. as Somalia. Yeah, it's about the same distance from Nigeria. So, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, it's, it's just, just south of Somalia. So, uh, so those... Uh, th- those those assholes in Nigeria fucking it up for the rest of us. Thanks, mm. guys. Thanks. Thanks, Nigeria. Awesome. Mm. Armpit of Africa. <laughs> all yeah, right. Polio of all things. I mean, we, we really should have that under control. I mean, we have, we have yeah. the means. We have the ways. Yeah, we have, we have the technology right now mm. to wipe it off the planet. We could do it today. But, um, but it's people standing in the way, just refusing to allow it to happen. Stupid people. Yeah. Politicians and people with other agendas. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, let's go for some more bad news uh, from elsewhere in Africa. Chris, what have you got for us about a stampede? I've got a stampede for you, unfortunately. And uh, Sports stampede. What? Sports stampede. Political stampede. Bad stampede. Bad stampede. Oh. Pe- people people trampled stampede, I'm afraid. Okay. Uh, and this comes to us with contributions from our West African Affairs consultant, Aaron Jones. Oh. Um, Sunday, 19 May which was this last Sunday, four people were killed and more than 20 were seriously injured in a stampede uh, during a a church service in Accra, Ghana. Uh, A church official estimated that the congregation for this one service was around 45,000 people. It's triple their normal number. Holy crap. Yeah. And Ghana, of course, is is in uh, sort of Western Africa, not far from Nigeria, actually. Yeah, it's it's, um, uh, the the two large Hmm. anglophone countries up in that corner of the world yeah. it's a little complicated the 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 leader of the church a guy called uh, tb joshua um had announced the previous sunday at his lagos branch um that uh, they would be spreading this magic water to all their their other branches around the world and that's apparently what the Ghanaians were were rushing to get wow i wonder if they were going to buy it I'm not entirely sure if they charge for that or not, but but uh, they, 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 they certainly, yeah, they they certainly make that. money off of a lot of the things they do. Uh, Joshua is one of the wealthiest evangelists in, in uh, Nigeria, uh, with a net worth somewhere in the region of uh, 10 to 15 million US dollars. Bugger me. Uh, his uh, synagogue, Church of All Nations, has branches in Lagos, Accra, uh, London, Athens, and Cape Town. Wow. So London and Athens, jeez. Yeah, he's... he's um, I mean, they're all fairly um, international. These these Nigerian megachurches. There's there's another one. I forget the name of it that uh, has a branch right here in Joburg in in Randburg. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, these these the leaders of them are ridiculously wealthy. Um, Forbes has whole articles that you can go and read about how wealthy they all are and how they got that wealthy. Yeah, I mean, ten to fifteen million US dollars might not sound much to. You know, compared to somebody like Bill Gates, but to compared to your average uh, citizen mm-hmm. of Nigeria, that's yeah, wealth massive. beyond imagination. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a hell of a lot of money even to me. Yeah, sure, true, sure. true story. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, Joshua also has his own uh, evangelical TV channel um, called Emmanuel TV. Oh, um, he leans very heavily on Wasn't the. Isn't a porn movie? <laughs> <laughs> Now that you mention it, it, that's exactly where my bread went as well. Yes. <laughs> now that you mention um, it, that's that's a porn franchise, actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is presumably what he shows. I've, yes, I've, no. I've never watched it yeah. with um, branches everywhere in the world yeah. as well. Maybe yeah. that, maybe it's good TV. Maybe it's worth watching. <laughs> um, but yeah, he he leans very heavily on the the magic and miracle, miracle cures kind of thing. Um, he even 
suggests that he can claim a, a, a cure things like HIV, AIDS, and cancer. So he's he's making some fairly out there mm. woo claims. We just thought it would have been bust by now because I mean, how many people are going, you what, know, flocking to him, hoping to get their HIV or cancer cured and leaving without it cured? Well, how many of them believe they are cured and then die without getting to report it? But yeah. does it even really matter? I mean, we know with uh, James Randi and these pop-off mm-hmm. investigations in America back a few, ooh, 20 years or so ago now. Mm. I mean, he exposed the guy on TV. The guy was arrested. He was found guilty. Mm. And he's out there doing the same thing again. Mm, yeah, People yeah. thought, oh, now he's changed or, yeah. or mm. uh, it wasn't the right time or he just needs a little bit of help. I mean, yeah. mm. I suppose you, you would way. tell yourself that you didn't have enough faith. Yeah, so yeah, you would yeah, be yeah. too it's, ashamed. It's, it's definitely a very similar pattern to what happens with the mm. American mega evangelists. Yeah. Um, but this is the reason why, why people throng to these places in such great numbers is because of these promises of magic cures for for whatever ails you. Yeah. Uh, the mega church was quick to deny responsibility and shift blame for us. Um, they, they've uh, accused the Ghanaian police of failing to control the crowd, but what are you going to do about 45,000 people? I don't know. Hold up signs that say stop. Yes. You, need, you need Professor X to like control all of them at the same time. Yeah, indeed. Waggle, yeah. waggle fingers. I think we've had far too much time to practice jokes <laughs> on this. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, um, they've... Uh, um, the, the Ghanaian police have told them not to use that same venue in future and you will have to see if that makes any difference church officials uh, also denied that um, TB Joshua uh, uh, was going to appear there in person which is apparently one of the things uh, the crowd were expecting uh, and that uh, also denied that uh, any of the holy water was going to be delivered there that day um, but there seem to be mixed reports on those things um, it's hard to say what, what the church really promised and what the crowd could realistically expect to be delivered. But all this kind of misses the point that the, the church has built its entire um, support base on people receiving magic made up things. It shouldn't be a surprise when you get desperate throngs um, showing up to, to, to get you know any, any vague glimmer of hope um, in, in such emotional states. This is Dr. Stephen Novella from The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, but right now you're listening to Consilience. All right, well, we have some announcements for you this week, and they're all from Joburg this time. The, the first one is Skeptics in the Park Joburg, and that's happening this Sunday, the 26th of May at 1 in the afternoon, and it's going to be at the usual spot at the Johannesburg Botanical Gardens in Emerentia. The next one is run by Sue, and that's Rumble in the Pub, Joburg. Uh, it'll be happening on Thursday, the 30th of May at 6.30. Uh, it'll be in Rosebank. The exact venue will we'll decide during the next few days, and, and uh, we'll update the, the Google Plus event. So keep your eyes on that. The next one is Skeptics in the Pub, Joburg, and that's happening on Wednesday, the 5th of June at 7, and that's at our new venue at Pizza Vino in the Wedge in Morningside in Santon, so which is completely awesome, and they have completely awesome pizza. And then the next one is Skeptics in the Pub East Rand, and that's happening on Tuesday the 11th of June at 7, and that's at our usual venue at the Grand Slam Sports Diner in Edenvale, which is quite nice. Shall we move on to our links of the week? Uh, Sue, because you knew you can give us your link first. I found something very interesting, and uh, I was actually just uh, searching for robots. Um, uh, I as find, one does. Uh, yes, yes, as one does. And I found a site... Uh, called uh, nemogould.com 
and that's the name of, of, of the artist. So Nemo as in Finding Nemo, and Gould as in the surname, G-O-U-L-D. And it's a site that showcases his what is called kinetic found object sculptures, which are robots and beautiful things which will blow your mind. And they move and uh, they're made from, from um, found um, antique and new household objects and they're absolutely beautiful and very inspiring. It's oh, intriguing. Indeed, they're gorgeous. Have a look. It will make you want to be rich so that you can <laughs> buy them and put them in your house. You're quite right. Patrick, have you got a link for us? Yes, I have. Uh, most of you know when I do my little news of the five minutes news and stuff, I use an app called News360. Well, News360 actually has a website as well. You do have to actually uh, uh, apply, not apply, but sort of log in and so forth, uh, so I can sort of get a feeling of what sort of news you enjoy. What I really do enjoy about that website is it doesn't just give you one news feed. It usually gives you a news headline with multiple different news sites. Uh, and so you can follow a story across all the news websites to get a more in-depth view of the stories. That's quite oh, nice. That's pretty cool. I'll have to look that up. Nice. Well, mm-hmm. thank you. Chris, have you got a link for us? I have for you uh, Daniel Dennett's Seven Tools for Thinking. Um, which is exactly what it sounds like. Daniel Dennett, the American philosopher, just wrote an interesting article, uh, which I quite liked, um, including some practical advice on how to be a better critical thinker and a little bit how to debate people more efficiently. It's a bit of a a, a hodgepodge, but it's all good, sensible stuff. Um, And a lot of it is stuff that I've uh, also seen uh, advised in similar words from uh, Steve Novella, our, our former guest on this show. Um, and I thought it was friend, quite friend nice. of friend of the show, Steve Novella. That, that, that's the correct. Our terms. friend, our friend, yes. Steve. From Skeptics Guards to the Universe. <laughs> Sounds interesting. And Owen, you got anything interesting for us? Um, yes, yeah, so it's, it's something that I don't think will be uh, um, unfamiliar to anybody. It's just I think it's something worth reading every now and then. And it's uh, it's Jay Huger's "Kissing Hank's Ass." What? Uh, "Kissing Hank's Ass" by Jay Huger. Just. Uh, do they mean the guy from Californication? Because I'll go first. No, it's not that guy. Oh. But um, it's it's uh, it's still pretty awesome. It's it's basically a little allegory for for how absurd it is that religion is the way it is, and um, it's uh, it's really cool. Just go check it out, and you'll probably want to read it again if you haven't lately. It's good stuff. Cool. Great. All right then, um, Sue. Where can people find you on the internet? Well, I'm in the process of giving my blog a revamp, so I won't direct you there at the moment. So the best way to find me is to just um, look on Google for Suzanne Patterson, and um, there aren't that many people around with my name, so that's the safest and most direct way to do it. Awesome. And Chris, where can people find you online? I lay claim to all of fjordsofafrica.blogspot.com. Nice. Excellent. Lord of all you survey. Indeed. When, when you have that tape open. <laughs> uh, and Patrick, are, are you on the internet at all? Oh, yes, I am. Go to Google. Go to the search box. Type in T-H-E-M-Y-S-T-1971. Whatever appears, that's me. Nice. Excellent. And uh, that's how you find me online as well. Uh, just uh, Say, type in T-H-E-M-Y-S-T. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, the, the, the search query is different. You, you type in my name, Owen Swart. And, um, and then that's me. That's me all up in that bitch. All right, well, that's all we have for you this week. Thanks to my co-hosts and to you, the listeners. Be sure to join us again next week for more Consilience. You have been listening to Consilience, 
Our website is conciliancecast.wordpress.com and you can send us an email to conciliancecast at gmail.com. Theme music is The Optimist by Zoe Keating from freemusicarchive.org. Consilience is produced in association with the Gauteng Skeptics and the USS Dauntless. And Patrick Till. What up, facts? <laughs> this, this is what happens when people follow the script. <laughs> I got so on last time. <laughs> <laughs>